In general, the methodology that I use for preaching as well as teaching is that I focus more on the macro, the large idea um, or ideas, and try to situate those within the, you know, the people um, so that they really understand the big idea and then trust that as we extrapolate the smaller ideas or the extended ideas, we're going to be able to do that fairly well because we've got the main ideas in hand. Okay, so anyway, it's not just random what I'm doing with you every Sunday. It's, there's actually a, a whole methodology that I'm using. And then um, I circle back to certain concepts to make sure that, to reinforce that, that we know them. Um, lest you think this is a classroom, but, you know, it kind of is. So with that in mind, as we're looking at the gospel today, I want to accomplish uh, two things. Well, I want to be able to answer for us two questions. The first, why was Jesus tempted? Why did the Father allow him to undergo that? What's the point? Okay. And then secondly, why does God allow us to be tempted? What's the point of that? Now, whenever we look at interpreting scripture or thinking about God or theology, there's certain concepts we need to have. So this is one of the big ideas, right? This is one of the big ideas we want to start with, which is that God is perfect. We know that. God is perfect. If he weren't perfect, he wouldn't be God. So God is perfect, and part of perfection means he doesn't change. He's immutable, as it's called. So God doesn't change. God cannot in his divinity, change. Change is a sort of imperfection, okay? So God is changeless. So then we take that idea and then we apply it to him being tempted. Well, if he's perfect and changeless, he's not going to sin. We already know he's not gonna sin. The father knows he's not gonna sin. So what's the point of allowing him to undergo that temptation? Okay, well, there's some things that we... Again, we can draw conclusions. We can say, well, we already know he's not going to sin, so that can't be the reason. So there's two principal reasons I want to share with you. There are others, but there's two principal reasons that I want to share with you as to why this event, the fasting of 40 days in the desert, was so important. The first is what Paul talked about in that second reading. You know, the one and the many and the, the one and the many us and all the rest. After a while, you know, you kind of get dizzy. Um, with what he's talking about. But basically, it's this. Look, it's called typology. It's the idea that, and I've been talking about this, how Jesus fulfills the law, how he fulfills the old covenant. And one of the really important things for the Jews was that they could see in Jesus the continuum to the Old Testament, how he was fulfilling it. And so many of the actions that Jesus takes demonstrate that, okay? And Paul talks about that in his letter. So he is presented as he's being tempted. He's presented as the new Adam, okay? Where the first Adam was tempted by Satan and failed, the new Adam who will redeem humanity doesn't fail. He is tempted but doesn't fail. Jesus is also presented here as the new Moses, Moses, who leads God's people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the desert for 40 years, and then ultimately to the promised land, Jesus, the new Moses, 
leads people through baptism. That's why he submits to baptism. Leads people through the waters of baptism. He himself goes out into the desert for 40 days, right? And then he, he leads us to our definitive promised land, heaven. So this imagery is really, really important for the people hearing it at the time, and it should be important to us as well, because it shows that God had a plan all along, that, of course, he knew what he was doing, and in Jesus, he's fulfilling that plan. So that imagery matters. That's the first thing. It kind of ties it together. Now, a deeper reason is that we have a God who we call Emmanuel. Remember, that means God with us. So when we think of the incarnation, God becoming man, incarnation, enfleshment of divinity, the unification of the divine nature and the human nature in Jesus Christ, what's happening is we have a God who wants to be close to us. He doesn't just redeem us. You've heard me say this before. He doesn't just redeem us from afar, sort of, as it were, doesn't get his hands dirty. He actually enters into his own creation, takes on our nature, and seeks to redeem us, does redeem us, through our own nature. We couldn't redeem ourselves. There's nothing we could do. No sacrifice would be enough for any of us individually or collectively to be redeemed. It would take a perfect sacrifice to do that, to be able to make up for all of the sins of humanity to to divinity itself. It takes a perfect sacrifice. There's no human being who's perfect. But if God becomes man, unites the divine nature with human nature, now you have a perfect man who's also God who can offer a perfect sacrifice. And so God does in our own flesh what we cannot do for ourselves, And he does this because of his desire to be so close to us. God himself then enters into humanity seeking to understand, if you will, not that he doesn't understand all things because he's perfect, but he seeks to experience human nature with us. And in this way, he says to us, as it were, I do not leave you alone. I come into this mess that has happened and I am one with you in it. And so Jesus does know what it means to be tempted. No, he's not going to sin, but he knows what it's like to feel that temptation. He knows what it's like to feel loss, to have loved ones die. He knows what it's like to weep. He knows, of course, what it's like to suffer, and he knows what it's like to die. God cannot do this in his divinity because he's changeless, but he can do it in his humanity because he takes on human nature. And so we have a God then who wants to feel as we feel. So much does he love us. This is the great message of the incarnation. That's why it's so amazing. is because of his desire to be one with us. So why is Jesus tempted? That typology, that imagery, you know, really matters. The new Adam and the new Moses. Um, secondly, his desire to be one with us, to be close to us, to experience what we experience, okay? Those two reasons are two principal reasons. Now, why does God allow us to be tempted? Because you think about it and you think, well, you know, it would have made the whole thing easier if he didn't allow Satan in the garden, if he didn't allow our first parents to be tempted. 
Um, if he doesn't allow us to be tempted, gosh, life would be so much easier if we didn't have temptation. Perhaps. If you want to be a slave, that would be true. Because to remove temptation and the possibility of evil also necessitates removing freedom. And so God creates you know, all things as an expression of his love that he might bestow his love on all of creation. But there's two beings that he creates with the power of free will, angels and human beings. And the reason he gives that free will, well, these are the ones we know about. There might be other beings, but these are the ones revealed to us, angels and human beings. And so the reason he gives us free will is because he desires the love that he bestows to be returned. He wants the love back. And the only way to receive love back is to give the creature freedom to give it back. To command love isn't love, right? If you've ever been in in kind of an unhealthy relationship where there's a lot of coerciveness, you know that that's not love, right? that, That is a kind of slavery. Without freedom, you have slavery. That is, in fact, the opposite of freedom. And so God creates us with freedom of the will so that he might receive that love back and and also that he might turn us into creatures. It is proper to say creatures. We are his creation. To, To actually form us into people who desire the good and grow toward the good. Now, we all understand how this works because of children. Either you have them or you've been one. Right? So... We all know what that's like. And one of the things we all know, and parents, you know this very, very well, and I, I, I know this, of course, too, having worked with literally thousands of kids and teenagers, is that as they grow older, you need to, to begin to test their responsibility. You need to start to give them more freedom. This is the tension of adolescence. If you keep them in a padded cell until they're 18, and then unleash them on the rest of us. They don't know how to use their freedom. And I've seen that. I've seen that. Some parents, and of course, you know, there's this desire. You want to protect your kids. Of course you do. Nobody wants their kids to suffer. Nobody wants their kids to fail or make mistakes. But sometimes parents take it so far that they never allow their child to acquire virtue. And the only way to acquire virtue is to come up against the opposite possibility vice. You cannot grow in patience unless you're given the opportunity to be impatient. You're just not automatically patient because you're never given the possibility of the contrary. You you cannot grow in uh, fortitude, moral courage, unless you're confronted with the possibility of, of being cowardly in the face of a difficult situation. Until you actually have to exhibit courage, moral courage, you won't ever begin to acquire virtue. And so if we keep our children from those experiences, and I know as parents that can be kind of scary and each child is different, each family is different, I get that. But you all know you have to do that. If you spare them that experience, and I've seen it, your kids get out of the house, they go to college or they they get out, and then they come to see me when their lives fall apart because they can't use their freedom they haven't acquired virtue. To be able to live the good life, we have to have virtue. 
And that can only happen through exercising it. Think of it another way. If you're, uh, if you're lifting weights and you start with, I don't know, let's say 20-pound dumbbell curls, um, you know, that's pretty light. And, but if you're, if you're doing that, I don't know, two to three times a week for a year and you're still at 20 pounds and you haven't grown any, you're not getting stronger. You can only get stronger with resistance and with increasing resistance. Now, some people rightly ask, well, gosh, you know, I've, I've become more faithful in my life. I'm going to mass more often. I'm praying more. Why is it getting harder? That's why. That's why. St. Teresa said uh, to God, she was, story of her cleaning the church, and she was <laughs> talking to God and uh, she said, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. <laughs> um, but that's what happens, right? Because if we want to continue to grow, we have to come up against the resistance. And God wants to keep perfecting us. And the only way to do that, now it gets easier because the more virtue we acquire, the easier it is to be virtuous. Right? And you think of virtue this way. Virtue is the ability to do the things I want to do when I want to do them and to not do the things I don't want to do when I don't want to do them. Vice is the inability to not do the things I want to do when I want to do them and the inability to not do the things I don't want to do when I don't want to do them. One is freedom, one is not. One is freedom of self-determination, truly being able to be the person we we want to be when we want to be that and to resist those things we ought to resist. And every single one of us is in process. But the reason for the temptation is because God wants to make us into a certain type of person, a person who is like him, a person of virtue, a person of holiness. That's what he calls us to. And the only way that that happens is in the crucible. That's the only way. Now, what is the upshot of this? And this is perhaps the most important thing. So that's why we're tempted. The most important thing I think is this. Jesus always existed because he's God. It's one of the perfections. He's infinite. He's eternal, more specifically. Um, so Jesus always existed. The second person of the Trinity always existed. At a point in time, he became man. He took on our human nature. But then he took our human nature to the cross, to the grave, through the resurrection, and into heaven through the ascension. And what he promises us, and those of us who remember our baptism or remember our kids' baptism, maybe you remember the words, were made sharers of the divine nature, partakers of the divine nature. You see, what Jesus now offers us is greater than what Adam and Eve ever could have had. They, didn't, they were not sharers in the divine nature. Yes, they were without sin initially. But what Jesus offers us through baptism and through the sacramental life and ultimately through our redemption is that we're actually able to receive divine life within us. So close does he desire to be with us that his grace can, it's called habituate in our souls, right? That, remember when you were little hearing about the state of grace, that's what that is. 
Being in the state of grace is having divine life in our souls, always being there, working for us, you know, moving us up, giving us strength, giving us more. And one of the things that we find in life, because this is what God did with all of creation, right? He took fallen creation, fallen nature, and through his son, he gave us a gift that was better than we had at the beginning before the sin. He does the same thing with our failures. And this is why we cannot be afraid to fail. We should be afraid of not trying. We shouldn't be afraid of failure. We should be afraid of not trying and attempting greatness. Because what God will do in our failures, if we allow it, if we place that failure into his hands, our sin, whatever kind of failure, is he can take that and bring a greater good out of it than we could have ever had at the beginning. Thomas Aquinas, why does God allow evil? Why does God allow us to suffer? To manifest his power that he can bring good out of evil. And that's what he does. That's what he did with the cross. That's what he did by taking on our human nature and redeeming all of humanity. And that's what he will do in your life if you let him. If we allow him to rule, to reign in our lives, if we invite him into that relationship, all of our failures don't just remain failures. They become possibilities of even a greater good than we could have had had we not failed. I realize that sounds strange. So you might think, well, Father, am I drawing the conclusion that we just ought to fail in the first place? Well, no, obviously not. But the reality is that I, I think, and in, in, in many of us who have experienced this will testify, right? How many times have you heard, you know, somebody say, my greatest failure taught me so much. My greatest failures taught me so much and made me a better person. Good came out of it. And it does if we let it if we don't remain a victim, if we don't remain uh, down, if we don't remain hopeless in a sense of abandonment, if we turn it, even that failure over to Jesus and allow him to redeem it, greatness awaits indeed. Please stand.